righty. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 3 as we conclude this, this chapter. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. The Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a spirit, sorry, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the event of history of Jesus being baptized. We thank you for all of your word and how it points us to Jesus. Grant that in every way we would see the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, last week we looked at the first part of chapter 3, which introduces the ministry of John the Baptist who is the last, and in accordance with the word of Jesus, the greatest of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant prophets. We noted that he's the greatest because he is the one who stands on the precipice of the end of an age. His ministry spans the ending of one and the dawning of another. He, unlike any preceding prophet, lives to see the Christ. And so... He serves as the Lord's front forerunner, preparing the way, tilling the soil, so to speak, the soil of men's hearts, that they might anticipate the coming of the one to whom their whole being is due. They owe repentance. They owe allegiance. And so John came preparing the way for that. Now this passage, this baptism of Jesus, this episode in the ministry of Jesus is of such consequence that it is one of the few things that is mentioned in all four Gospels. Consider that we love and celebrate Christmas, but it's only mentioned in two. The baptism of Jesus is instrumental in the ministry of Jesus. Why? What is so significant about the baptism of Jesus? Well, that's what we're going to discuss today. 
And I promise you this is not going to be an academic lecture because Scripture was not given to us simply to draw factoids. Jesus, his life, and his ministry were done for you. So what does this passage teach us about Jesus and his accomplishment of something for you, for me? What do we need that this passage elucidates for us? Well, let's look and see. First, I want you to see that John himself is shocked that Jesus is coming to be baptized. Okay? Realize this. We have a sometimes misunderstanding relating to how much John knew. Or we sometimes say it conversely, John's experience gives us a little window of insight into what the perspective of a prophet was like. Here's what we mean. Sure, from his earliest time in the womb, he leapt for joy when the sound of Mary's voice reached Elizabeth's ears. Now, I do think that we tend to, put to draw more from that than, uh, than we should. It's, it's a common experience for mothers who are pregnant to find that their child inside them jumps around when they're excited. Okay? And why do I say we sometimes find, get more from that? Because John himself testifies in chapter 1 of the book of John that he didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. That's what John says. But he's given insight, so when he sees Jesus, in a moment he says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So what was it? Had he, did he not understand Jesus was the Messiah, or did he? Well, my suspicion, and because John confesses both things, is that he didn't, but then in a prophetic moment, the revelation was made clear to him that Jesus was. Prophets were real men, just like you. And they had their fears and their worries and their doubts. And we see that John himself is going to have doubts when he's in prison. And we see that he, rather, rather than just being a stalwart that we imagine that a true person of faith is, he's in prison, rotting, and the ministry of Jesus doesn't look like the ministry that he was perhaps expecting. And so Jesus sends messengers to comfort John and encourage him. So John the Baptist's own experience gives us a window of insight as to what the ministry of a prophet is. And I want you to understand that right now there's a part of Jesus' coming to be baptized that is simply an affirmation of John. Understand that. Understand that John was, one, popular at a local level, but two, he was under intense scrutiny. The religious leaders did not like what John was doing. And so they were coming, and, and we, we learned that they were, later on, we learned that they were accusing him of all sorts of slanderous things, including being possessed. It's terrible when persecution like that arises from within the household of faith, but it does. And so Jesus coming to be baptized is a ringing endorsement of the legitimacy of what John is doing. 
This is a legitimate thing. This is, he's, his call to the people to repent is needful, good, proper, and true. So when John sees one that by his own self-awareness is greater than he, John is shocked. I need to be baptized by you, and why would you be baptized by me? It is implicitly an endorsement that what John is doing is good. Now that's important biblically. But Isaiah prophesies that the coming Messiah would be gentle. And that a smoldering wick he would not extinguish. Understand that what we see here in Jesus' implicit endorsement and sanctioning of the ministry of John is a care and concern for his people. Of the emotional and spiritual and mental well-being of his children. Keep that in mind because we're coming back to it. But Jesus comes and John is shocked because in verse 11, just a couple of verses prior to our passage today, he, he acknowledges that he's inferior to the Messiah. And when Jesus comes, John is scandalized in a sense. He's, he's almost embarrassed. I, this baptism is, is a religious rite. It's a, it's a sign to God. The greater should be baptizing the lesser, not, not the lesser, the greater. What's going on here? And John felt, ugh. The second thing is he acknowledges that his baptism is inferior to the baptism that Jesus offers. Remember in verse 11, John says, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance, But the one who is coming after me will baptize with what? The Spirit and fire. Wow. Third, John acknowledges Jesus doesn't need his baptism. My baptism, Jesus, is a baptism of repentance, it's for sinners who understand that they have offended a holy and just God and who are, who are guilty. It's for people who want to express remorse for their actions. It's for people who want to turn around and start over and dedicate themselves to God. Jesus, you don't need this. So John gives all the objections that we might think. Indeed, it has puzzled people why Jesus would get baptized. It has puzzled people why Jesus would say in verse 15 of our passage today that this baptism was necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean by that? Well, Because in granting, it is true. There's, there's no Bible verse that says you must go and get baptized to show remorse for your sins or something like that. There's no clear baptism, which is one, why it was so important for Jesus to personally go and by his participation acknowledge the legitimacy and the goodness of John's ministry. Because otherwise there may have been questions. But no, By affirming, by fulfilling all righteousness, 
what we're to understand first and foremost is that Jesus is identifying here first publicly with the people he has come to save. Jesus has come into the world to save his people from their sins. That's what the angel told Joseph back in chapter 1, that he would save his people from their sins. That means he's going to be their substitute. He's going to be their mediator. He's going to be the one who represents them. And so because of this, it was essential that Jesus should take on repentance even though he didn't personally need it, but the ones he came to save did and do, I might add. It confirms, therefore, that Jesus is the Messiah who came to take away the sins of the world. This passage serves as the ordination of Jesus. Every commentator expresses it a little differently. Some will use the word ordination. Some say consecration for ministry, whatever. But in that respect, this passage mirrors and echoes the ordination practices outlined in the Old Covenant. In Exodus 29, which describes the ordination of the priests, and in Numbers 8, which describes the ordination of the Levites, they were washed, sprinkled, baptized, if you will, as a, so, as a form of their consecration and set-apartedness to the purpose of God. And so in this act then, Jesus is acknowledging the ministry of John, identifying publicly with his people, and accepting the consecration due his calling as redeemer. And then the results of it are that the spirit descends upon Jesus. The father declares and reveals the son's identity, that this is my son. And we also receive news that the father approves and delights in his son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This passage is a famous Trinitarian passage. That the father is speaking, the spirit is descending, and the son is coming up out of the water. All right, that's what's happened in this passage. What's for us? Well, the apostles thought this passage was really important for us. If you, if you look at the sermons and acts, just about any time an apostle is going to recount the story of Jesus, they begin with his baptism and the ministry of John that preceded it. Okay, these facts of the baptism of Jesus account have a few things that are for us. First, we are to see and model and reflect the humility of Christ. Most commentators are quick to point out that Jesus traveled a long way from his home in Galilee down to the wilderness of Judea where John was. 
And what was Jesus doing on the way down there as he was walking with those crowds? Was he preaching? No, he was not. He was loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. He was keeping the law, meriting righteousness as a private person. He comes, the Lord of all, and his first act of ministry is to be ordained. It is to receive a sinner's baptism. Think about that. We are called in Scripture multiple times to model the humility of Christ, and we see so thoroughly his humility that he begins his ministry by identifying with sinners. He didn't come and stand on the mountaintop and have a staff in his hand and the sun just pierced through the clouds behind him, casting this with, with a host of angels. Oh, while he descended, oh, no. He just sort of pops out of the crowd. He assumes from the very start the position of a servant. Even though John, upon seeing him, and by revelation from the Spirit, is aware of who he is and has perception of the gravitas of Jesus, nonetheless, Jesus has none of it. That's humility. That is submission to the purposes of God. Note how Jesus, throughout his ministry, consistently says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He lives, breathes, and dies for the purposes of God. Jesus is wholly committed, and he's humble about it. I, I'm in, we should all be convicted. How many of us jockey for place? We want our perspective to be the one that takes the place. We want our will to be done. We want our advice to be taken. We want our preferences to be enforced. And here Jesus is, from day one, humble. That's awesome. But he's humble for us. Second, Jesus is keen on affirming the ministry of John, not just for John's sake, though for John's sake. And that's a great comfort to us to know that the Lord cares about you personally. The Lord cared about John personally, but in terms of the story of redemption and, and our involvement in that story, Jesus is keen to affirm it precisely because there's a there's a line of continuity from the ministry of Jesus through that hinge of John back into the old covenant. And the Lord wants you to understand that this line of continuity points back to the promises given to Abraham, to Eve, that the seed of the woman would destroy the seed of the serpent, that all the nations would be blessed in the, in the descendant from Abraham. That all God's covenant promises then are yes and amen in Christ. So there's no break 
There's no break at which we could say, maybe he started over and there, was a, and there was a glitch. No. By affirming the ministry of John, he's affirming that that bridge between the old and the new connects them. Which is why we see when we apply baptism to someone and Jesus proceeds from here, it's imperative to know, to remember, that John's baptism by itself is not Christian baptism. John's baptism was only for repentance. But in Christian baptism, the element of repentance is incorporated. And Christian baptism signifies even more. But it builds upon and replaces. It doesn't just obliterate. So, one, recognize that in affirming the validity of John's ministry... He is affirming God's desire that you should take great confidence in the revealed word of God and the promises contained therein. The Lord wants you to understand that that line of continuity connects you to them so that you can have confidence and hope in your time of difficulty and trouble, just as John did. Second, from the baptism itself, or third now, I'm sorry, I'm lost in my numberings. I, went, I did something really foolish, and I don't know why. I went from one, one to, from numbers to letters. And that, that's always a recipe for disaster, and I, I don't know why I did that. So, but, but the next one on the list, so I think number three. The next one on the list is Jesus did not need to be baptized for himself. He needed to be baptized for us because we need baptism. We, we, need, we need repentance. And our Lord did it for us. Now, understand what this is telling us about ourselves right off the bat. We are sinners in need of repentance. And our repenting is often tainted. Hence the need for the sinless, perfect one to repent for us. Is that even in our repentance, I'm not going to be one who's going to say that it's principally impossible to truly repent, but, but even our repentance is oftentimes tainted by some sort of angle or desire to avoid even worse consequences or something. Understand that we are guilty. There's no room for pride here. We need repentance. We need to repent, which is why Jesus is going to, when he starts preaching in the next chapter, he's going to tell us as much. But understand right here that you have a high priest who has just been ordained. He has just been consecrated to do his mediatorial work. And the act of ordination is him, on behalf of his people, repenting of sin. Confessing. Brothers and sisters, you have a great high priest who did everything start to finish to accomplish salvation on your behalf. We just sang in Rock of Ages that the works of our hands could never fulfill his law's demands. 
And that even if, I, I love this part, I'm not going to say it poetically because it won't come across right, but I love that next part of that stanza. That, that even if my tears just flow, even if, even if I express my sorrow to the nth degree, it doesn't wash away my sins. It doesn't atone for my sins. Nothing can make us clean except Jesus. But the good news is, is that Jesus accomplished your salvation from start to finish as your representative, even expressing sorrow for your sins perfectly. And that's important because not only has Jesus satisfied the demands of God, but here's the sweet stuff. I said, what was Jesus doing when he was walking down from Galilee? Well, he wasn't preaching and he, he was loving God and his neighbor. He was meriting righteous. That's then given to you. So when you are in Christ, not only has a Savior fully satisfied for your sins, but all the righteousness that God desires is credited to you, and it's yours. It's awesome. Fourth, now I'm back on track. The Spirit's descent upon Jesus is astonishing. Because what that is highlighting for us is the utter dependency of Jesus on the Spirit for his ministry. We, we sometimes think that Jesus in the full glory of his second person of the Trinity in this, that he just did his stuff of his own accord. No! The Bible is consistent that it is the power of the Spirit working through Jesus that fuels his ministry. And it's amazing that Jesus sends that same Spirit to us. That same Spirit that energized the command of Jesus to a dead man, Lazarus, come forth. That same Spirit that energized the words of Jesus to draw life back into and bring out a dead man, that same Spirit resides in you. None of us, not even the Lord himself, did ministry in his own power. You and I are fools to think that we can do ministry of our own accord and strength. We need the Spirit. And the Spirit is ours as a gift of Jesus to comfort, to console, to convict to sanctify, to strengthen, and empower. So brothers and sisters, marvel at the wonder that the same spirit that resides in you was the same spirit that empowered our Lord. Finally, fifth, the Father identifies the Son as the Son but then he says, in whom I am well pleased. I, I, I need you to understand the, the divine sigh of contentment here. 
The father loves the son in a way that's inexpressible in human words. The father delights in the son, and the son adores the father. But you want to know something? That divine love that is shared between the persons of the Trinity, we are brought into that. And if you are a son of God, if you are in Christ, then the question is not, does the Father accept me? Does the Father love me? No. The answer is, behold, my son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Your Father loves you. Your Father delights in you. Not not because of the own innateness of your awesomeness, but because he has taken away your sin. And he has clothed you with the righteousness of Christ. And because of this, he has given you his spirit And you have become a partaker of the divine nature according to scripture. And as such, he adores you. So, we struggle with sin. We we struggle, man, we're, we're so sinful that oftentimes when we're sinned against, we just respond sinfully, right? I mean, a day doesn't go by. And we feel beat down because we struggle with it experientially. But understand that Jesus took your place. He has shown us the way. But he has taken our place. He has accomplished our salvation. And as a gift of that accomplishment, he has given you the very spirit that enabled his ministry. And this spirit is hard at work in you. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying you and and every opportunity, every tension-filled moment you have is an opportunity whereby the Holy Spirit is going to sand a little bit more away of the old self to bring out the natural shine of the divine nature that has been implanted in you. He's bringing David out of the marble. So brothers and sisters, the Lord's baptism marks not only the commencement of his ministry, not only the beginnings of his acting and service as our mediator, but it serves as an example of everything to come and the base, the root of our own Christian contentment. So brothers and sisters, in the face of this world's troubles, remember our Lord was baptized for you. Give thanks and rejoice. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the baptism of Jesus, for acknowledging his identity and your delight in him, for equipping him for service by the Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for your humility and for being willing to identify with sinners, to identify as a sinner, Thank you for doing all of this for us, that we who were far off and without hope might become beloved sons and daughters of your Father. Thank you, God, for accepting us because of Jesus. Thank you for the confidence that you will never cast us away. Grant that we would live our lives in increasing devotion and dependency 
upon Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.